You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, the passage this morning is thick with symbolism, and uh, it's a difficult passage unless you have some crucial background about how it all fits together. Otherwise, it feels a little bit like a a hodgepodge. And so we're going to be spending a, a bit of time here this morning in the Old Testament, so that we can better understand what Jesus is doing and saying in what he does and says in this passage. Um, But first, we want to remind ourselves where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We've noted a number of times now that uh, Mark has this messianic secret as he presents the ministry of Jesus. Jesus does these mighty works. He does signs and miracles and exorcisms. They create certain expectations and hopes. And at the same time, he veils his true identity as Israel's Messiah, and even more importantly, the Son of God. And so with his disciples, this messianic secret builds and builds and builds until Mark chapter 8, when Peter utters his famous confession. Peter sees through into the secret and says, I know who you are, you are the Christ. Peter gets it. And yet, even then, Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anybody what you know, because while they get that Jesus is the Messiah, they really don't understand the nature of his kingdom. They don't get what he's all about, his mission. And so for the last few chapters, what we've seen over and over again is this repeated confusion on the disciples about Jesus and about the kingdom. And so here's this pattern. We've seen it now a few times. Jesus explains what he's about to do, like I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, uh, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then be raised. The disciples either rebuke him or they get confused or they misunderstand exactly what he's saying. And then Jesus then instructs them further in what his kingdom is like and how they must live as citizens of that kingdom. Okay, so just look back in your, in your Bible. In 831 uh, to 34, Jesus tells them, he began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by elders and chief priests and be killed, and after three days rise again. Uh, and then Peter rebukes him. And then if you turn over into 930 to 31, Again, they went on from there through Galilee. Uh, He was teaching his disciples, saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. They didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't want to get rebuked again like Peter. Um, And yet then they argue about who's the greatest. And then in 1032 to 34, again, they're on the road that Jesus is walking ahead of them. And he takes the 12 aside and he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise. So he tells them and he tells them and he tells them again. And in the middle of all that, they argue about who is the greatest. And Jesus has to bring a little child and say, be a servant and receive children in my name. They they try to manage the kingdom. Like, hey, we saw some people who weren't following us, and so we told them to knock it off. And Jesus says, you can't manage my kingdom. You cannot. The one who is not against us is for us. They rebuke children when people try to bring children. Literally, after he says, receive children in my name, and some parents try to bring their kids, they're like, no, we don't do that here. And he says, guys, 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 don't stop the children. When the blind man says, son of David, and everybody's like, be quiet, he's like, that's the kind of person I want to come to me. They ask last week for the best spots in the kingdom. We want to be at the right hand and the left hand. 
And Jesus says, this kingdom is not about lording it over others. It is about service because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, Jesus' ministry took a particular and decisive turn because Jesus and his disciples are now heading to Jerusalem. That's where this story has been going all along, and the rest of the book, right? We're halfway through the book, about chapter uh, 8, 9, 10, and all of a sudden, the rest of the book is going to be Jerusalem. So half of the book is like all of Jesus' ministry, and the other half is just what happens in Jerusalem. This is where they're going. And so now they've passed through Jericho. They've healed Bartimaeus. He's following them. They've arrived now at the suburbs of Jerusalem at Bethany. And there's this thick symbolism from the Old Testament. For example, we didn't read this part, but you're all familiar with the triumphal entry. Okay, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him and says, go get a colt for me to ride. And they go in and there's like this password thing happening. Like they walk up and they're like, they grab the colt and someone's like, hey, what are you doing? The Lord has need of this. And they're like, you're good, right? So there's some kind of like understanding that this was okay. Jesus is getting a colt. Mark doesn't explain why Jesus is doing this, but Matthew does. Matthew in his gospel says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, of burden. And so Jesus is riding on a colt because he's saying, I'm that king. And now the secret is getting out. No more secrets. Now we're public, but we're public symbolically. Now the rest of that passage, after Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, as the people have, he's riding on this colt and everybody's getting the message. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed uh, is the coming kingdom of our father, David. We know he's the son of David. This, this crowd is alive with messianic fervor. They are ready for a deliverer. And then Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple and you think, here's the showdown. And he just looks around and is like, I'm gonna go now and goes back. Okay. And you might say, Why, what's going on here? Why is he... Why is he doing this? I want you to notice a progression in the passage that Kyle just read, okay? So follow me here. Verse 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple, has a look around. The next day, verse 12 to 14, there's an incident with a fig tree. Jesus then goes back to the temple and he raises a ruckus, Verses, verse 15. The next day, they go back by the fig tree, and there's another conversation around the fig tree. And then in verse 27, which is the next passage, Jesus goes back to the temple and begins to have a confrontation with those chief priests and scribes who he has said are going to kill him. So you follow? Temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree, temple. That's the movement of the passage. That's what links it all together. The rest of chapter 11 and 12, what Jonathan's going to preach next week and then the following week, is a battle of wits and wisdom between Jesus and the chief priests. They're going to get into it over and over and over again as they try to play stump the Messiah. But I want you to first get the narrative, the symbolic narrative that sets up that confrontation. He goes to the temple. He checks it out. Next day, he's hungry, sees a fig tree. It's leafing, even though it's not fig season, which probably means 
Like it's showing, it's showing leaves, which are signaling there ought to be some small figs now. We're at the beginning of the fig season. Those ought to be coming. And he goes, I'm going to go and get one of those nice, ripe, probably a little bit more sour kind of figs. And he goes and he looks all through that tree and there's nothing. And so he curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Continues on his way, overturns the tables in the temple, teaches the people about what the temple is for, which provokes those priests and scribes to try to destroy him. Next day they come back, Peter sees the tree. Hey, that tree, that one that you cursed, it's, it's all dried up like that. And Jesus says, I've got some stuff to tell you about prayer. And he teaches them about prayer, about mountains being thrown into the sea. And then he returns for the showdown with the Jewish leaders. Now, to understand this passage, you need to understand at least two, if not more, elements of Old Testament background, okay? Here's number one. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people and their obedience are often described in terms of fig trees and fruit, okay? Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah sees a vision of good figs and bad figs, and God tells him, here's what the meaning of this vision is. Good figs are the exiles of Judah that I am going to bring back from exile, plant them in the land, and I'm going to give them one heart to know me and obey me. Bad figs are King Zedekiah and the Jewish leaders who I am going to turn into a horror and a byword and a curse. Hosea 9.10 describes God's first encounter with Israel in Egypt. So this is like looking back about God's first encounter with Israel in Egypt back in Exodus. Here's what it says. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Israel is like a fig tree with fruit. And then Micah 7 is pretty relevant. Listen carefully. Micah 7, 1 to 6. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. I'm hungry. I want a fig, and there's nothing. Sound familiar? Why? What's, this is God talking. The godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. They're going to do evil well. The prince and the judge, the rulers, ask for bribes. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and then they weave it together. They make plans and plots for evil. Sound familiar? The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Their confusion is at hand. Don't put any trust in a neighbor. Put no confidence in your friends. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms because the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's in the background as Jesus goes to look for that fig. Second thing, background we need to keep in mind. Remember what Israel's expectation and hope was in the first century. They were hoping and praying for God to deliver them. If you remember back in Mark 1, when we talked about what Jesus means by gospel, by good news, we went to Isaiah and we found a number of passages. I'm going to remind you of them. Go up on a high mountain. This is Isaiah 40. 
Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Remember where Jesus is right now. Zion, Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the city of Judah, behold your God, he comes with might, his arm rules for him, his reward is with him, he will tend his flock like a shepherd, he's gonna gather you up like lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Or again, Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, to Zion, to Zion, to Jerusalem, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. He's coming back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the place of his dwelling. So break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And we could add to this list Isaiah 61, where the good news of liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons, the year of the Lord's favor, when God will come to comfort all who mourn, Give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So Israel's expectation and hope is that in the midst of their suffering and oppression, God is coming back to Zion, to Jerusalem, to his temple, and he will restore the glory of his house. He will bear his arms before the Gentiles. He will deliver his people. And so here comes Jesus amidst cries of Hosanna to the son of David, returning to Jerusalem, to Zion, on the back of a colt with shouts of acclamation, but instead of coming to comfort Zion and to restore the temple, he wrecks it. He walks in and throws over the tables. He chases everybody out of the temple. He says, you can't even carry anything in here. And then he says, now we're gonna have some teaching. Now, Mark's summary of his teaching includes two quotations from the Old Testament. I said this was thick, right? So we've got Zechariah and Jeremiah fig tree stuff. We've got Isaiah good news kind of stuff. Now we've got two quotations from Isaiah. Your Bible may only give you one of them, but I think both are really important. So here they are. The first one is from those gospel good news passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, verse 6 to 8. Here's what it says. Listen to the whole passage. Okay, this is a passage that says when God gathers his people, it's not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. Listen. The foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh and, to, and minister to him and love the name of Yahweh and are gonna be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, does not profane it, holds fast my covenant. Those foreigners, I am going to bring them, listen to where? I am going to bring them to my holy mountain. That's the temple. I am going to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar because my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. 
I'm going to get more people than just my Jewish flock. I've got others I'm bringing in. So you got that? God's going to gather others besides those already gathered. And Jesus takes that good news passage and then he sets it next to another passage. And maybe you didn't know that this was a quote. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Where's that? The temple. And proclaim there this word. Say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. But do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, the reason those are deceptive words is, in Jeremiah's day, the people thought, this is God's house, nothing can ever happen to it, no matter what we do. Like, it's like a magic charm. As, it's, like, it's like the magic building. As long as we're in here, nothing bad can happen to us. And so it doesn't matter whether we obey God or not because we have the magic building. We have a magic building that will protect us. And Jeremiah says, don't trust in those deceptive words that think the building will protect you. For if you truly amend your ways, this is Jeremiah again, and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with, another, with one another, if you don't oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't go after other gods to your own harm, then I'm gonna let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Keep listening. But behold, you trust in deceptive words. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods? Now that should sound familiar, right? That's 10 commandments. He just, he just box-checked them, okay? Will you go after other gods and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing those abominations? Are you really that hypocritical, Jeremiah says? Has this house, listen, which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Where do you think you are? Behold, I myself have seen it, says the Lord. And then God says in Jeremiah, I am going to take that house, the one called by my name, the one that you think is a magic house that can protect you, and I am going to cast it out of my sight. Now, so Jesus quotes good news passage, house of prayer for all nations, and then quotes not so good news passage, and then the very next thing in Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah 7. Here's Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. As God describes his judgment on Israel, he says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them, has passed away from them. Now, if you pull all of that together, right? That's, 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 when I say it's thick, it's thick, okay? There is all kind of biblical passages and events lurking in the shadows as Jesus makes his march into the temple, but all of it hangs together. Here's what you have. Okay, this is summing it up. Israel is under Roman occupation. 
They're eagerly hoping and anticipating the day that God's coming back to Zion to deliver them. And they've tried to get ready, sort of. Like, here's the deal. Herod the Great, Herod the Great, spent over 45 years refurbishing that temple. Like, expanding its courts, giving it an upgrade, making it really, really nice. I mean, he was attempting to make Jerusalem great again. And now, thanks, Sean. Here comes Jesus journeying to Jerusalem, returning to Zion as the son of David and the son of God. And he comes into this magnificent building and he says, yeah, you've sure made it great again. This is an amazing structure. But you've forgotten what this building is for. This is my house, my house. And it's supposed to be a place where God's people, including people from all nations, gather to pray and worship him. And like in Jeremiah's day, you have turned this house into a den of robbers. This building, all of this hustle and bustle and activity, man, that's really impressive. But it's all leaves. It's all a show. There is no fruit on this tree. And what good is a fig tree if it has no fruit? That's what all of this thick symbolism is about. From riding on the colt, to cursing the false fig tree, to turning over the tables, Jesus is attempting to remind God's people what the temple was for. It's not for show. It's fine. Herod, you made it big. You made it big. But what provoked Jesus was the substitution of hustle and bustle, of economic and even some spiritual activity to substitute that for the real purpose of the temple, which was to gather the people of God to pray and worship and obey him. Now, what's that have to do with us? Yeah, I've got just four quick aspects of prayer. And you say, why prayer? Because Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then when he curses the fig tree and Peter's like, look, it, it withered. And he says, hey, let me tell you guys about prayer. I hope you now see why. That's not just like a, I've just got some rando stuff to tell you now. No, no. It's right in the thick of all the symbolism because what the building was for, that's what these people are for. That's actually the first application. The fulfillment of that temple, that house of prayer for my name, in the new covenant is the people of God themselves. We are the temple. We are the house of prayer for all peoples. And so when we gather, when we do this, you need to remember what this is for. What this gathering is for. And when we multiply and plant churches, we need to send them out, reminding them what they're for. You are a house of prayer for all peoples. And we didn't plan that that this passage, like we planned it a different way. We had a plan for like a month ago to do what we're gonna do at the end of this service. 
And then everything got shuffled, and then I'm preparing my sermon, and Jonathan's reminding, hey, we're going to commission. And it's like, well, that's interesting. But it's a reminder to us and to them, this is a house of prayer. That's what this is for. Second, it's good and right. This is the second application. It's good and right to want deliverance, okay? You should pray, deliver me, O God. But this passage reminds us that the fundamental deliverance we need is deliverance from ourselves and our own sin, okay? Because the people in Jesus' day, they wanted God to deliver them. Deliver us from the Romans. Deliver us from oppression. That's a good prayer. But it's not the first prayer. You got me? It's a good prayer. Deliver us from oppression. Deliver us from injustice. Deliver us from that. It's not the first prayer. The first prayer is, God, deliver me from myself, What does it profit a man to be delivered from his external enemies and still to be a slave to himself? Like, deliver me is probably, it's one of the three or four most common prayers I pray in my life, okay? The other two are help me and thank you. Help me is a prayer for assistance. Like, I need help, I need strength, I need wisdom, I need words, help. Deliver me is a prayer for rescue, Deliver me from my sinful desires, from pride. Deliver me from anxiety and from envy. Deliver me from doubt and despair. Deliver me is a prayer for rescue. And then when God gives the assistance and the help and when he gives the deliverance and the rescue, the only proper prayer is thank you. Thank you. Specific, sincere, targeted gratitude for the gifts and the help and the rescue in hopes that those three prayers will be an on-ramp to worship. So if you leave here with nothing else today, help me, deliver me, thank you, would be a good place to start so that you can be a house of prayer for all people. Third, what's the, um, what do we do with his lesson from the fig tree about the mountain? This is the weird thing, okay? So he says, you say to the mountain, be thrown into the heart of the sea, it'll be done. Now, I I think at one level, I think it's likely that the symbolism is still going on because the mountain of that, he says this mountain, I think he's pointing at this mountain, the one where the temple is. And in the Old Testament, another if, if Israel is often compared to a fig tree, the nations are often likened to the sea. Okay, the nations are an ocean in the Old Testament that, that when the waters, you know, like, so it's like the flood, the nations rise up and they, they drown Israel like in the flood. That's an image of judgment as the nations of the world drown the people of God. And so when, you, when Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, he may still be working with that. God's gonna judge this place and we're gonna see more of that in the coming days. So that's one piece. But he draws a broader lesson than just one about that mountain, and the nations. He says, um, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. And that's where all of us go, seriously? Really? This is like the, the one passage of Jesus that we're like, I don't know about that. It doesn't seem true to my experience. Now, I've been really helped by Lewis on this passage, okay? And Lewis gives us three counsels about how to interpret Mark 11, verse 24. Number one, 
he says, when he, he talks about, Jesus says, have faith in God. It's, he exhorts us. And Jesus says, or Lewis says, don't try to gin up faith on your own. Because that's our first thing is, okay, if, if I got to believe, I got to just work it up. And what that usually means for us is we try to produce some faith in our own power, which means we combine this like desperate desire, like this really angsty kind of desire with a really vivid imagination, and it produces this subjective feeling sometimes, and we say, that's faith. I've got it. Where's the answer? Where's the thing that I asked for? And we begin to measure the value of our prayers by our success in conjuring certain emotional states. Like, if I pray and try to conjure the feeling and it comes, I think, that was a good time. God loves me. And if I don't, if all I am able to do is say, help me, deliver me, and thank you, and there's no real subjective feeling there, we think, it's a total failure, I'm lost. And Lewis says, don't try to gin up faith in that way. It's never going to work. That's the first lesson, first counsel. Second, Lewis distinguishes between three ways that someone might approach God in prayer. Okay, so think about these three ways. You've probably approached God like this at various times. Number one, he says, we can come to God as a suitor, like someone who's bringing a suit to him, okay? A suitor makes requests of someone, but struggles to know whether he's truly heard. Like you come, like it's like this um, kind of anonymous process. You think about a lawsuit or a, um, a suit to a king in the, in the uh, old world, right? So um, I'd like to have an audience with the king. And so you write out your thing and say, I'd like to have an audience. And you don't even know if he ever got it. That's you come like a suitor. And some of us live there, right? You, the struggle is, does God even hear me? Like, is this even getting through? I'm praying, but it feels like it's hitting the ceiling and coming straight back down. The struggle for the suitor is to believe that however circumstances look, God hears your prayers. And some of you are there and you're wondering, does God even hear me? Because you don't mind. If God says no, you're like, I could deal with no. But what I can't deal with is being ignored. Like if he heard, if he, if he looked at me and said, I'm not going to give that to you because I love you. You'd go, okay, I, don't, I really wanted that. This thing that I'm wanting, I really wanted that. But, but you said no, and I trust you because you're my father. You can deal with that. What's, what's difficult to deal with is, is he even listening? That's the suitor. And I just want you to know if that's you, if you're there today, God has heard every one of your prayers. Not one of them has been lost. Second, there's a step above. That's the servant. The servant has confidence in his master's reality. He knows God is here and God is good, and he knows that God uh, hears him, but he doesn't know all of what God's up to, right? He's, he's not in on the master's secrets, okay? He's under his master's orders, and the struggle for the servant is to pray and then to do what you know God wants you to do. Like, it's the obedience that's hard. Not, does God hear me? I know he hears me. Now it's, I struggle to believe, that, or struggle to do what I know God requires of me. That's the struggle for the servant. Carrying out the will of God. Then above the servant, in the highest place attainable by human beings, Lewis says, is the friend of God. The one who stands before the Lord face to face like Abraham and Moses. And the friend of God has been let in on the master's secrets. He knows what the plans are behind the orders. He's God's fellow worker. And the reason that the friend's prayers are so confident 
is because he knows what God is up to in this moment, and he is simply asking for what is needed to complete the job, okay? And that's where Lewis says Mark 11 comes in. It's the prayer of the prophet, the apostle, the missionary, the healer, in a moment of insight in which it's basically like God gives you insight into what's about to happen and says, ask me for it. It's almost like you get a little bit of the divine foreknowledge and then you just say, yeah, that. And that's why. So now you say, how does he know that? Look in the passage. He says, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, not that you will receive it, like it literally says, believe that you have received it. In other words, it's like you're seeing the future as though it's already here. And if you get that kind of insight, you ask and God says, done. And you say, wow. That's like mountaintop prayer. That's friend of God prayer. And it is not where most of us live most of the time. Most of us live as suitors and servants. And so I just, my exhortation there to you is this. If God gives you that moment of insight into the future, man, run with it. Like take the shot. Like if, if you see it, pray and take the shot. But if you live on the foothills instead of the mountaintop, be faithful where you're planning. Press into God as suitors and servants in hopes that over time, more of that friendship with God will be fostered in your life. Final thing. Jesus' last exhortation is about forgiveness. When you pray, he says, forgive. And I think that's interesting because the lesson there is you cannot hold on to bitterness and receive the grace of Jesus. As long as you are clinging to some offense, you cannot open your hands to receive God's mercy. And so, and some of you are there. Like this is the, probably the most live thing for, for most, some of us in this room is the biggest hindrance to your prayers, to your engagement with God is that you have something against someone else and you won't let it go. And what Jesus is commending is you need to feel the realness of God in prayer. Like you need to, you're praying, you're meeting with God and the realness of God needs to be so powerful in your life that it's more real than that offense that you're clinging to and playing over and over again in your head. You're desperate for your soul to rise to God, but there's this shackle of bitterness and resentment and anger and even low-grade frustration and annoyance at the people closest to you. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It only takes a little bit of bitterness to keep your prayers on the ground, which brings us to the table. Here's the table where we do all of these. We are God's house gathered for prayer at this table. And we gather here not just as suitors or as servants, but as the friends of Jesus, the sons and daughters of God. And here we pray and we ask for God's forgiveness because this is a table of mercy. And we ask for his help because this is a table of assistance. And we ask for deliverance because this is a table of rescue. And we say, thank you, Jesus, because this is the Eucharist, the table of thanksgiving. And so come and welcome to Jesus. I'm gonna pray as the pastors and the worship team comes up. Father, in the midst of all of this heat and humidity, we are gathered together, not just in your house, but as your house. We have gathered to pray and to seek your face, and we have gathered to commission another house of prayer.
for all peoples. Gather us now, Lord, around your table and give us the comfort that is ours in Christ, Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us, Lord, even now. We're praying in this room, if there are people who have things against someone else, forgive so that we might be forgiven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we come around, it is a gluten-free option, so uh, everything's gluten-free, so you should be able to, to have it. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.